I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 38 on Gardner F. Fox's Kothar of the Magic Sword. I'm Jeff, and with me today is the sun-bronzed barbarian, Hoy. Howdy. And also joining us is podcaster extraordinaire, Liz Stewart, a.k.a. DM Liz from the Save for Half podcast. Hi, Liz. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. I'm not sure Absolutely. I would, I'm not sure I would say I'm a podcaster extraordinaire, but I appreciate the compliment. <laughs> no problem. Well, I mean, I think Liz that you were sort of one of the pioneers of the sort of OSR podcasting. So I think Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I was listening to I was listening to your voice long before I was listening to any of these other any of these other jokers I listen to now. So, <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I should thank you or offer my condolences. But <laughs> <laughs> so, Liz, can you give us a little bit of background as to how you originally got into gaming? Oh gosh, um, I was about 11 or 12 years old, and my mom had taken me to the local hobby shop. And I went there because I was looking for model train stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was into model trains as a kid. Uh, <laughs> so I was there for model trains. I had no idea that role-playing even existed. And I was looking through the shop, and I saw this box sitting on one of those little multi-tier wire rack display things. And it was just sort of shoved in a dark corner of the shop. And it had a painted cover of the wizard and a, a guy in plate mail standing off against a red dragon. Um, the Holmes basic box set. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had no idea what it was, but the art on the box made me want it. And so I got it instead of the model train things that I'd initially come to the shop for in the first place. And nice. that's how it all began. <laughs> And this continues our trend of guests who started on the Holmes box set. Well, it, it be- is the best. <laughs> <There you go>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Moldvay uh... guy myself. But... Well, Moldvay is nice too, yeah. but Holmes is best. <laughs> right. We've got to get the guy from Blue Holm and maybe the guy from Zenopus Archive on at some point then. you know. Oh, oh Michael yeah. Thomas is awesome. Yeah. Speaking of which, actually, one of my one of my recent book lots was actually from the Holmes Estate. It just was on the eBay. I was looking for the last Saberhagen book, and it said, "Oh, Holmes Estate." So, (laughs) wow, that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, So, Liz, how did you? Were you reading uh, science fiction and fantasy at that point? How did you drift into that? And Uh, did you become aware of Appendix N? uh, I was. Most of the science fiction I was reading was stuff by Andre Norton. Um, She was what got me into sci-fi and fantasy. I was, of course, reading, you know, J.R. Tolkien, Hobbit, etc. So I had a background with that already, which I think was part of the reason why the art of the Holmes box drew me in, because I liked that kind of thing already. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, 
as far as Appendix N as a concept, um, that would have probably been the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide where I saw the suggested reading list. And it's like, huh, I've already read a couple of these. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure you'd already read all of the Kothar books by then. Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody had. (laughs) Who hasn't read Kothar? So speaking of Kothar, (laughs) let's discuss the editions of Kothar of the Magic Sword that we're reading today. I've got the 1969 Unibook paperback with this Jeffrey Catherine Jones cover where it's got the blonde-haired Kothar with his giant sword and um, some naked woman in the background cowering for her life. Um, But what's weird about my edition is I think it's a bootleg. Because (laughs) if you look at it, do you guys see how there's like a little like price tag on it? Yeah. That price tag is printed on it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And, Hmm. And like there are little coffee stains on it, but the coffee stains are printed on it. But what's weird is the pages inside look like a legitimately old paperback. So I don't know if it's just like a bootleg cover tacked on. T- I'm not really sure what this thing is. That is a Russian. That's a Russian of it that I was reading. <laughs> that was a Russian Samus Data bootleg. You know that was smuggled out of the Soviet. You know into and out of the Soviet Union. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and how about you, Hoy? Which version are you reading? I'm reading Kurt Bruegel's uh, ebook um, uh, revival of it. Uh, he's been doing the whole Gardner Fox library, and so it's a pretty good copy. There's a few typos, but it's it's pretty clean. Um, does yours have illustrations in it, by the way? There's four sort of random illustrations in mine. It like does. And, yeah. Yeah, mine has one has that too. Yeah, yeah. They don't seem to be related to the story. There's a barbarian in there, but they don't seem to be related to any story points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And how, how about you, Liz? Um, my book has the same cover as yours. Um, it does say that it is Belmont publishing though. Well, Um, Belmont, Belmont first published it and then Unibook did both in 1969, but with the same mm -hmm. cover. The only difference is right here on this uh, kind of on the front part, it says either Belmont or Unibook. Yeah. Mine says Belmont. (laughs) Yeah. Those are both 1969, but Belmont was Mm -hmm. first. Hmm. So yes, some kind of weirdo bootleg, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not really sure. That is very interesting. All right. So moving on quickly to our Hygaxian word of the day. The word that we're looking at today is cantrip. Cantrip. And cantrip appeared three times in this novel. Um, and it means a mischievous or playful act or a trick. Now, twice cantrip is spelled in a kind of a goofy way I had never seen it spelled before with an A, C, uh, with C-A-N-T-R-A-I-P. Uh, but it appears on page five. It says, and this is in the foreword, in his world are to be found wizards, witches, warlocks, and much magic, as, uh, and much magic, as well as the clash of swords that can withstand spells and cantrips together with the mighty men who hold them. Then also on page 43, it says the helix would be the doorway into a world that the helix itself, by means of necromantic spells and cantrips by which it was formed, would create. And then finally, on one page, it's spelled the right way. (laughs) (laughs) There was so much of it. No man or woman uh, would be crowded. And with his cantrips, he would always he would always extend its borders. So our word of the day is cantrips. There you go. Do either of you have a word that stuck out to you that you would like to contribute? Oh, I don't think it's Hygaxian, but I just <laughs> thought it was very strange 
the usage of the word helix yes. in in such a fantasy type setting. I mean, we're used to hearing about helixes with DNA and science related. Yeah. And to have it just pushed into a fantasy setting just kind of made it stand out to me as an odd choice, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But I like that. How about you, Hoy? Right. Um, that's a good odd one, too, because he never really describes the helix and you start to like, what is this thing, right? You, you, again, you're picturing this double helix. Um, <laughs> uh, he actually, I don't have a specific word, but I've noticed, and I noticed the last time, he likes to use sort of semi-archaic terms and never really de- uh, define them in the text. So he used the word cack for the sort of Mongolian um, saddle, but he never says it's a saddle, right? <laughs> um, and there's a few other words like that, you know, like um, klamis, which is, I guess, is like a, a kind of Greek-style cloak, right? Or penula, which I guess is another kind of cloak, Um so he throws a few words in there. And I, m- I remember reading that he had like, you know, a 3000 book library. So I think he probably just, you know, radios encyclopedias from time to time um, mm. to give it sort of that veneer of, um, you know, antiquity, even though I guess it's supposed to be set, set far, far in our future, 50,000 years in our future. So, <laughs> so now quickly, I'm going to read the back of the paperback and then we can go into the library and start discussing the book. So on the back of my paperback, it says, Kothar stole the helix from the fat emperor of Avalonia. It was the only way he could hope to recover his magic sword Frostfire from the belly of the giant eagle of Nirvala. But the original theft of the helix was to embroil Kothar in an even more, in, in even more uncanny adventures. An ice being, an eerie creature even in Kothar's world, used the helix for his own dark purpose. Trying to forget the beautiful Layella, driven away from the witch Red Lory, Kothar agreed to deliver another lovely girl from the sinister followers of the god Polthum. Even with his magic sword flashing in his powerful hands, it was the bloodiest, weirdest, most blood-chilling adventure of his life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. So, Liz, I'm curious. Had you read any Gardner Fox, any Kothar, and what did you think of Kothar of the magic sword? Oh, gosh. This was the very first Gardner Fox book I had ever read. Um, (laughs) Mostly I was familiar with him through DC Comics because I was a big comic book reader as a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I really had not um, read any of his books before until reading Kothar of the Magic Sword for the show. And how was this experience of reading it? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) Did you enjoy it? I did. Okay. And I got to say, I went into this thinking I wasn't going to, because <laughs> usually these kinds of um, pulp barbarian type books, you know, I'm not the intended audience, <laughs> you know, to put it politely. No, definitely. <laughs> and I thought, man, this is going to be a real chore to slog through this, but I'm going to do it. And hopefully <laughs> I'm not going to just be doing a hate fest on the book for the, for the show. <laughs> But I started reading it, and I got to say, I am convinced that Gardner Fox was laughing at everyone the whole way through writing this. Oh, without a doubt. Absolutely. It's like everything was turned up to 11, and (laughs) the purple prose was so purple, it was almost black. It's like, I'm reading sections of it aloud to Mike, and we're just dying laughing. It's like, I had the best time with this book. (laughs) 
I would say that the uh, the buttocks to page count is extremely high in this book too. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, there, there was even a point where like he talked about like watching her twitching buttocks as like she yes! walked away or something. <laughs> it's like oh jeez. <laughs> yes, Kothar. I and that's this is my second Kothar book I've read, and I have found that like it, it should it should suck. I should hate it. It's like just a total Conan ripoff. Kothar the Cumbrian in Avalonia, yes. as opposed to Conan the, the Sumerian from Aquilonia. Um, but it's just, yeah, there's just, they're so playful and silly and fun. And he very clearly isn't taking himself seriously. Hoy, having read the first one, how, did, how do you feel this one compares to the original Kothar Barbarian Swordsman? Um, I think um, I think it's still of a piece, and but I do think, as Liz points out, that's even more obvious that he's just having fun. Um, I think like some of the sentences are just like ludicrously funny. Uh, she was temptation incarnate in her evil nudity. <laughs> <laughs> yes, her evil nudity. Oh, jeez. Right? Or um, what use were female demons if they could not use their demoniac wisdom to aid a man when he needed it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then when he asks if, if he can strangle the emperor a little bit, you know, when he's in the alternate dimension. <laughs> that was really funny. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. For those listening, he ends up kind of in this. And I love how I love how Kothar, um, how Gardner Fox is just ripping off everybody because he's also totally ripping off Jack Vance here. And we've got this like Pandaloom character who's got this, who's this great wizard who has this alternate dimension he's created. And he's in this ultimate alternate dimension where, like, if you kill anybody or try to kill anybody, you die. But he's asking, like, can I just strangle this guy a little bit, please? <laughs> and that was cracking me I'm not up. Not gonna kill him, just gonna just a little bit. <laughs> just, just strangle a him a little. <laughs> There's actually a lot of strangling in this book, more so than in your typical swords and sorcerer. Right? He strangles that sort of ape creature, the uh, abomin. The ab- I forget it's not abomination, abominal, something like that. It's the uh, the abominathal. Abominathal, right? And um, so there's a lot of strangling. I don't know what that says, but... <laughs> yeah, he's kind of the Homer Simpson of uh, barbarians. <laughs> right, right, right. Why are you little? <laughs> <laughs> and I think one of my favorite last lines, I guess it's with the, um, you know, when they find that temple in the desert and they're luring the, mon- the mongrels. Not, uh, you know, not mongols, mongrels. And, says, and then there's that dark god who's in wait for them. He, he better be a prompt god, the barbarian growled. <laughs> <laughs> so it's speaking just, uh, of the mongrels, what did you guys think of the use of mongrels? Because like, I know like Fritz Leiber has the mingles, which are obviously right. mongrels, but mongrels seems to kind of have a bit of a, um, I don't know. It, that, that, it's getting there. It's, it's, it's getting, getting there. there. How do you guys <laughs> feel about, about did, that, did that sit uneasy with you at all? Well, I mean... It was kind of obviously a play on Mongols. Yes. I did kind of like the the twist, though, because it gave the impression of a kind of a sub-race of man, mm-hmm. one that was partially animal right? and very or- perhaps not entirely human. Right. Very so, orcish. They're very yeah, orcish. So I, so I liked it for that because, you know, it was almost like a mongrel dog mm-hmm. as opposed to a mongrel Right. Race. Gotcha. Right. So. Yeah, and I, I think also, I mean, uh, we know that Gardner Fox was, um, again, a, a pretty good amateur historian. And so there was that, it sort of harkens back to sort of the Middle Ages when they weren't sure if the, or the late antiquity, when they weren't sure if the Huns were actually just demons from the, West, you know, the East. 
you know, or the, you know, the Mongol, you know, invasion, or if they were just demons in a sense. So it is kind of horrible dehumanization, but it sort of fits into the tropes of the genre pretty well. And I don't think it's kind of deeply felt, you know, in a way that maybe like Lovecraft or some of the earlier, uh, you know, uh, pulp, pulp writers sort of, you know, embraced it. Yeah, definitely. So Kothar of the Magic Sword really kind of isn't a novel. In, in some ways, it's kind of really two kind of two novellas that kind of have a, an overarching kind of character arc, but they do, they're, they're two pretty separate, unique stories. Did you guys have a preference for the first or the second? How did you feel about the two stories on their own? Uh, I think I preferred the the first story mm-hmm. over the second one. The second one seemed much more uh, tropish, mm-hmm. you know, standard, you know, I have to save the girl. Oh, the girl's actually a demon. Mm-hmm. Now I have to do this thing. Uh, there seemed to be more original idea, that more original ideas in the first story about the Helix than there was about the second one with the evil cult, yada, yada. Yeah, I agree. I thought the first one was a much more playful and creative one. I had more I had more fun reading it. It also was kind of a more cohesive, coherent story to me. The second one I thought kind of fell apart in a lot of ways. And maybe you guys can maybe I'm not understanding something and you guys can help me with this. But in the second story, you know, it starts off with Red Lori saying, You've got two days left to live. And then she's like, uh-huh. You've got one day left to live. And she's like, You die tonight, Kothar. But then there's a moment where he's riding off to rescue the girl who's been kidnapped from the cultists. And he's he's trying to rescue her from the to, from being sacrificed to the god Pulthum. And at the end of that little chapter, it says Kothar would not live to see the rites of Pulthum. But he did. Right. Like right. he <laughs> did live to see the rites of Pulthum. So I, <laughs> Like, is this just like, is he just like giving us like a fake out kind of like ending of like, because I know he's from comic books. Is he just giving us like the end of a comic that's a complete lie about like, you know, like you get the the cover of the comics, like Superman died and you open it up and it's like a dream sequence or something. Is, is, I always feel like, is that what what was happening or am I missing something? Yeah, I think Ishril was thinking that to himself because it's, you know, right before it was saying Ishril was smiling grimly. <laughs> Kothar would not live to see the rites of Polthum. Oh, you know, maybe it's a formatting error. Maybe that should have been in italics. Yeah, I think that was supposed to be, you know, dude's thoughts to himself as he was oh, watching Kothar right, right away. Right, right. Okay, yeah, that, that's good. I like that. That might just have been a formatting error. Right. I do like the whole beginning sequence when she's this whole, this is Red Lorry taunting him, and she keeps on appearing in all the most ludicrous places, like in his little. Jack of beer. <laughs> 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 right. Right. And then, and, and then um, you know, and then like nobody else hears it, right? <laughs> and then he, he, and then I like this. He raised, he, his hand raised the jack. He swallowed the hail, half expecting to find the woman in his mouth. that's hilarious yeah of of all of the stories we read i've got to say kothar is the one that i can most easily see animated and kind of a heavy metal cartoon style uh better than anything else Mm -hmm. he's very thunderish i mean you could just see him going around saying ukla ariel ride (laughs) demon dogs you know (laughs) And um, the other thing I've noticed with all the Kothar ones is that 
in every story, there's a little like side trip to an alternate dimension or, or at least a, you know, a pocket reality for a little bit, right? You know, the, it's very much in the first story, but even in the second story, when uh, Red Lori is consulting the demon about getting her powers back, right? He's temporarily in the demon's dimension and then he gets kicked out, you know, and then he's back in reality when he, you know, you know, pulls his last ploy. So, I mean, I won't, I wouldn't give it credit for being the idea of multidimensional play in Dungeons and Dragons, but it's, it's certainly um, common enough so that people would say, Oh, Hey, you know, this is, this is easy. We can just wrap it into a, an otherwise grounded story. You know, he just pops into another dimension. Great. You know, <laughs> and yeah. I, I guess maybe that's again from the comic book roots, you know, of, of what was going on sort of the silver age, you know, late, late golden age, early silver age comics. Well, it's a nice catch-all. Yeah, like, we want something weird to happen. Yeah. Well, let's just put him in a little alternate dimension, and that explains everything. <laughs> trying for camp deliberately. Right. right. Mm-hmm. I I would almost say to bring it to the comic books, it's almost as Captain Marvel is to Superman. You know, or you know, Shazam, Captain Marvel is as to Superman. A little bit more lighthearted, goofy. Let's play with this rather than like carrying this forward into you know original territory. Yeah, I can see that. Part of the reason I'm asking is like, you know, we, we, we were discussing the illustrations and how they don't really match the story, you know, because there's one where he's like facing a dragon. And I remember when I saw that, I was like, oh, are we going to see a dragon in the next chapter? And nope, there's there's never a dragon. Nope. There's another one where he's there's like, sort of, like he's like wrapped up in a coil, like in a big giant, like coiled up in a big giant snake. And that never happens either. And I know that in the first story, we had that really hilarious, and in the first collection of Kothar books, uh, Kothar Barbarian Swordsman, there's that really fantastic fake introduction that I'm pretty sure Gardner F. Fox wrote himself pretending to be this, like, um, this PhD guy quoting (laughs) these, like, uh, philosophers that don't exist, um, talking about how lush and amazing the world of Kothar is. That was very, I, I really feel like he was like kind of making fun of the, the whole paperback uh, science fiction fantasy world at the time. And part of me wonders, like these illustrations that don't match the story, I can almost see Gardner F. Fox saying, I want a bunch of illustrations of generic barbarians thrown in there that don't match the story. And I could see him kind of doing that as a way of further just like mocking and making fun of this like whole like cheap paperback phenomenon. But maybe I'm giving the guy too much credit. Maybe this just is a cheap paperback with illustrations that don't match. <laughs> yeah, I figure they probably had these illustrations left over from other projects. It's like, hey, we could just stick this in at random points. <laughs> no one will know. <laughs> That's Kothar, right? Sure. Sure. Right. There's that, and there's that rat, the first illustration has that rat demon with the sword, too. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> no rat demon. Totally. <laughs> Although the cover really does look like, I mean, it's a, I guess it's a blonde barbarian, which is accurate. That's yeah. Kothar. Yeah. Um, so I wonder yeah. if, if Jeffrey Catherine Jones was actually tasked to make the cover for this and this wasn't just a reused piece. Right, right. I feel probably, I mean, Jeff, Jeffrey Catherine Jones' covers are, are always somewhat related, although the, to me they feel more impressionistic. They're not as explicitly connected to the story as, say, a Frazetta cover or, you know, some of the other some of the other uh, illustrators that we've talked about, like, I don't know, Ed Schwiller or one of those people like that. Yeah, that's certainly fair. So I'm curious, Liz, how did you feel about um, the female representations in the stories? Ah, uh, well, they're pretty typical for the most part. You know, <laughs> women 
for the women are pretty much there just to be decorative mm-hmm. or to, you know, be companions mm-hmm. to Kothar. And uh, every so often you, you've got a woman who has power and authority and even then, they cannot resist the masculinity of Kothar and eventually are overwhelmed and must have him. Uh, so it's, it's all very tropish in that regard. But, you know, at the same time, he doesn't go into, you know, ridiculous lengths with it, I don't believe. Yeah. It's oddly tasteful for the time period and the genre, <laughs> okay. if that makes any sense. Yeah. Sure. I don't think, cause it doesn't seem like it, he is both a product of his time and doesn't seem to be taking it as far as some other people did. Um, I'm curious now, do, does, does it, this being a work from the seventies make it something that you find easier to kind of swallow in that sense? If this were a piece written in 2018, would you, would you give it just the same amount of leeway or, or not at all? Considering that this seems to be uh, a campish treatment, I would probably, in this particular instance, if it had been written later on, I would probably still give it a little bit of leeway because, in my opinion, he would be, I'm deliberately touching on all of the tropes that are expected. Yes. Um, If it was being written, you know, totally seriously... Nowadays, I'd be going, uh... This is kind of gross. Yeah, this is kind of gross. But but yeah, I do tend to take stories that are written back in the late 60s, early 70s, and give them more leeway, because that was, you know, whether we like it or not, that was expected writing, and it was everywhere. Um, I was a big fan of Piers Anthony um, as a kid, and reading the earlier or actually reading almost all of the Xanth books, but especially the original trilogy. Um, the the women in those are treated in much the same way as they are here in the Kothar books. Mm. You know, they're there to be pretty. They're there to be admired. And even when they're smart and powerful, they wind up always falling for a guy and, the guy is the one in the end who is the most important. Yeah. Uh, and oftentimes it's the guy who's then like sick and tired of her, fo- her following him around and he just kind of like tosses her off somewhere. <laughs> Interesting. I, I kind of would expand on what Liz said. In a sense, I would be less tolerant of even a snarky version of this in this day and age, because in a sense, I think it's almost too easy um, to, to be that snarky, you know, whereas in the seventies, I think it was a little bit more difficult to that, you know, to do that. I mean, on the other hand, we don't have people doing the kind of level of internet scholarship that, I mean, I guess maybe even we're attempting to do, um, you know, and taking quite seriously. But I think that, you know, the, the, it's common almost nowadays to show your, I wouldn't even know, know if show your affection, but show any degree of interest only through sarcasm, right? Rather than just embracing something for what it is wholeheartedly. And so I would be less tolerant of a, spoofy version of barbarian stuff coming out you know this week than i would have in you know 1975 yeah and actually there's a couple things i say about the women characters and this is just my perspective but i think for example Leif, you know she's she's keep on telling kothar hey you know you want to have a little fun time you know it's not nah, nah, i'm sleepy right <laughs> but <laughs> but 
I can sense almost that she's just getting her jollies in her own way. Like, he's convenient. So it's not fully like, oh, I mean, I don't think she takes him particularly seriously, right? And I think Red Laurie doesn't take him particularly seriously. Like, oh, he's convenient. He's, you know, he's sort of, you know, beefcake that I can use for my own jollies. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that would be one reading of it. I don't know if that's, you know, um, a particularly strong reading of it, but I, I had a little bit of feeling of that, you know. So. I think it's certainly true that in some ways, a lot of the characters are all kind of equally toying with each other. You know, in the way, in the same way that Red Laurie allowed Kothar to live when that guy attacked him because she wanted to kill him herself later or get her revenge later, then Kothar ends up doing the exact same thing to Red Lori later where he saves her, but then keeps her alive in the end just so that he can like imprison her in this tomb forever with this silver door. Right. So it has a little bit of a, uh, and I mentioned this for the first time with the first book, and it almost feels like Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny's rivalry. You know, him and Red Lori. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they get their upper hand every once in a while and then, you know, things are back to status quo. Like I would not be surprised to see Red Laurie again in the third book. Oh, I imagine so. I I think that's why she's not dead. I think that's just why she's in the tomb. She's got to, she's got to pop her head out again. I'm pretty sure of that. All right. So kind of transitioning this over to the gaming side, Kothar is specifically cited by Gary Gygax as something we should read. So I'm curious, uh, Liz, we can start with you. Why do you think Kothar is specifically stated as something worth reading. And how do you think Kothar might have inspired the early iterations of D&D? Well, Kothar is your consummate murder host. Yes. (laughs) He never stays in one place. He's always moving, always seeking the next adventure and the next payoff. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, looking at him and his adventures... It's very much the D&D archetype. You've got your group of players. You're, they're always going from one thing to the other. You know, realistically, you know, at the end of a big dungeon hall, everybody around the table should be saying, well, I'm set for life. I'm going to go retire now. <laughs> I can pay off my credit card bills. and <laughs> That's right. You know, I'm going to get myself a nice little house in the nearest city and, you know, I'm going to kick back and have a family or something, you know. <laughs> but, but nope. We never do. Right. Um, yeah, PCs like Kothar would rust from their idleness. Exactly. And the sword Frostfire is the perfect vehicle to ensure that he keeps traveling and having adventures. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I also like that Kothar likes to test the boundaries with the rules of the, of of the Frostfire curse, the same way that PCs like to test the boundaries Mm -hmm. of rules of the gaming system. (laughs) Because like at the very end of the first story, Kothar is like, well, I know that this sword has a curse that says I can't carry any treasure and I've got all this treasure. Let's see how long I can hold on to it. Yeah. <laughs> what can I get away with? Exactly. <laughs> right. And on the flip side, I think it also, um, you know, there's that, I won't call it a new idea, but a relatively recently sort of sort of codified idea, sort of the old school community of attacking the character sheet, you know, not just the hit points of a character, but so... He's always losing his gear. He's, he's losing his wealth. He's losing his horse, although he gets his horse back. You know, his clothing gets torn. You know, um, you know he loses. You know, his loincloth, whatever. So <laughs> the, the ways of just kind of effing with the character that are not um, ultimately sort of destroying the fun of playing the character, but just like you know, giving them incentive to stay in the adventure mode rather than hunkering down and you know 
uh, going into the domain game and building their castles, and, you know, or that, that kind of stuff. So I think that that, um, as you say, it sort of it co- compounds on the older idea of the mur- murder hobo, but makes it sort of explicit as to why he would stay adventuring or why we could try to force some of our characters to stay adventuring. So I think that's a fun, a fun uh, aspect of this character. I think so as well. I think that's a really good point. And, and, you know, and we talked about curses, especially DCC is very strong on that. And sometimes it's a little hard to role play out curses or long-term curses in sort of more traditional iterations of the game. Um, also, Red Lori is a recurring villain. How do we have a recurring villain that we don't automatically want to kill off? How can we, how can we incorporate that into our games, right? Where there, there's someone who is a constant adversary that sometimes is also an ally. I think that's an interesting thing to play with. I think so too, especially since Red Lori saved Kothar at one point. So, cause she didn't want him to meet his end in this, like basically a random encounter. Um, so it, it also might be fun if you wanted to, if you wanted to incorporate some kind of a long-term villain, maybe occasionally the long-term villain will step in and save your butt, um, kind of be a little, like a little ace in the pocket, uh, get out of jail free card, um, just so that they can have their own vengeance with you later. It might be a cheap right, right. gimmick, but it, but if, if you do it right, it might it might be kind of a fun addition to the story. Right. I think it also helps, at least in the books. Uh, Red Lori usually appears to him as a spirit or in a dream or something like that. So even though he may want to kill her, she's not there physically, so he can't act upon that. And you might have to do that with your players, too, to ensure that they don't kill the recurring villain too quickly in the, in the game. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You know, or give them some kind of out as you, you kind of lampshade, like, you know, that they have, you know, nine lives or that they have a magic jar, you know, their souls in a magic jar. And so they can always project themselves into a different body or something, some kind of out that, you know, lets them, lets you bring them back. Yeah. I think it's a very comic booky thing too. again, to draw on the fact of having a recurring villain that, you know, you never quite kill off, you know, they just disappear from the story arc for maybe 12 issues. And then suddenly they're back when, you know, the demand is high enough, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I'm going to be really on brand here for a moment and do a little bit of clericating and talk about how also in this book, we have two examples of healing magic. One, he's <laughs> healed by a sorceress. And then two, he's healed by a demon. Um, and <laughs> so yet again, we have another example in the appendix end of arcane magic healing people and no clerics anywhere. So I'm just saying <laughs> wizards should be able just to heal it. people. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> it's in the source material. Right, right. Well, he also he also performed some first aid on himself, too. So there should be a, a an allowance for that, right? You know, he pulls the arrows out of his, you know, his uh, thigh and tries to slam the other arrow through his shoulder so it comes out so it doesn't get infected. And so. little things like I that, think I think, real- are what make and break mecha- uh, me- mechanics like a healing surge or a short rest. Right. If if right. as a game master, you're just being you're, you're allowing your players to say, OK, I take my healing surge. OK, roll some extra D hit points. So roll some extra hit points. Right. That's not flavorful. There's no there's no story happening there. But if you want to have your character say like, OK, I go off and I bind my wounds and I bathe in the river and I like, you know, right. have a night at the end and I or I, I get I get wasted on ale or whatever, and that's their that's their short rest or their healing surge. Great, like that makes sense in the story. Like it bolsters your right, metabolism, right. and now you're feeling better. And right, and that's also another opportunity for them to decide whether they want to do that or risk a wandering monster coming along while they're doing that kind of thing, you know, or some other kind of encounter. Sure. So, 
Now, Liz, while you were reading this, was there anything that kind of stuck out to you as like, ooh, this would be kind of a fun thing to incorporate in my games, or I would like to see this kind of a thing happen? I don't know if it's something that I would want to actually incorporate into my games, but it did stick out to me reading through this, you know, as you were talking about demons healing and that sort of thing. Demons don't seem to be treated as the inherently evil, always evil, all the time creatures that they're the way they're treated in D&D or other types of fantasy games. It just it was very strange to me about how the magician had used the aid of demons to create his little pocket party dimension. And nobody thought that that was odd or <laughs> evil or wrong. It's like, oh, he used demons. Well, sure, of course he did. And it's like, oh, this demon healed me. Well, of course it did. <sighs> it, demons just seem to be almost extra planar creatures that are not treated as being utterly evil in Kothar's world. And I thought that was a, an unusual way to to talk about them, and I'm not sure how well it would go over in a right. game setting. Yeah, like the, the demon that possesses the 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 girl is like mm-hmm. really happy to have a physical form, but then starts like, wait, I'm I'm cold now. I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right? It's like <laughs> right. I get scared now. I don't like that. Or the demons are even polite. Like at one point, like they free a demon and they're like, please don't kill us. We freed you. And he's like, I'm not going to kill you. Thank you very much for setting me free. You know, like it's it's very polite about it. I really appreciate what you've done for me. (laughs) And actually in a lot of ways, what they had to do to free him was kind of far more evil than anything the demon did. Like they had to like slay this like magnificent giant eagle who's just like flying around the skies, minding his own business, just being this like beautiful, epic, immortal creature. And nope, we're going to cut you right. open and steal this this ruby that's hidden inside your gut. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was Kothar in the lambskin and picking up the eagle and like slamming it repeatedly into the ground. <laughs> right, <and> just piling. <laughs> yeah. um, also, you were mentioning evil, like the cult of Paul Thum. They was describing it was pretty funny because like they were like mostly middle aged guys and <laughs> just wanted to have orgies, right? <laughs> Except for the priests, <laughs> and then they brought their serving maids and, <laughs> and girlfriends along. And they're like, oh, you know, Kothar's murdering the priest. Like, um, I guess we won't have an orgy after all. Let's get, <laughs> let's get out of here. I, wow, look at the time. I think I got to go home now. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and also I feel like the, 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 the fear of demons in this story, I think, comes more, or in this world, comes from more like they just seem to have like really incredibly powerful magic and access to it. So it's just like, don't piss them off because they can do really, really amazingly powerful things. And I think that might be kind of a fun thing to incorporate into your games. It's, it's kind of like the DCC patrons in a way where like, if you stay on the good side of these very powerful entities, like they can help you out. And if you don't, they're going to make your life really difficult. And I think that's sort of explicitly, I mean, obviously it's Fritz library, but it's sort of explicitly played out in the sort of DCC Lankmar uh, you know, iteration of DCC where you're, you're dealing with powers constantly that are slightly greater than you, but not necessarily truly immortal or gods. Right. Yeah. I thought yeah. one aspect that might also be interesting to work into the game is this, this concept of Niferheim, Niferheim, Niferhelm. I forget which one it is, but it's, it's kind of that nether place where your soul goes when it's not in your body anymore. And I thought it, I thought it would be kind of neat to maybe actually set something up where 
your characters, the PCs, all of their souls have been kicked out of their bodies. And now they're kind of like stuck in this like other realm, trying to get back to their bodies that are currently being possessed by these demons. That might be kind of a, a fun little story to, to play around in. Sure. You know, don't give them any access to their equipment, but then give them abilities that only work in that world in a sense. Maybe they can sort of move much more rapidly between place to place or have some other, you know, the, the, the underlying rules of that, you know, alternate reality or dimension, give them some extra abilities that they won't have when they return back to, for lack of a better word, you know, the prime material plane. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, then they don't have frost fire or whatever with them. So, um, you know, a new way of challenging them, but without ultimately saying, hey, I'm just going to negate everything that's on your character sheet or everything that you've earned t- to date, right? You know? Sure. Now, also at one point, Kothar, they, they attempt to kill Kothar. A bunch of assassins break into his room by night and try to kill him. And it got me thinking about the AD&D assassin class. I'm curious, do you guys think the AD&D assassin class was just kind of something that was kind of tacked on as like, oh, this is a kind of a cool idea? Or do you think the assassin class has appendix and roots that I just can't manifest in my mind at the moment? Um, not as a player character class, I don't feel. I don't feel like, you know, there's always room for an assassin. Sure. I think, you know, some shady guy shanking you in the alley. But I, I don't see any precedent for it in anything that we've read so far as a player character yeah. class. Yeah, I tend to think it was probably a little bit of each. You know, they It was partially put in because of appendix in antecedents. And it was partially put in because they probably had a bunch of people writing in complaining that they wanted to be a badass assassin. <laughs> it's like, okay, fine. Here. <laughs> Leave us alone. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I know Tim Cass is on record as saying that was one of the worst ideas, you know, that ever came into D&D, I guess. But um, I think it's very hard to play, having a specific class, you know, and have it work in a party unless you're literally members of all members of the Assassin's Guild. You know, I mean, I think you can have characters, you know, take on the role of assassins from time to time. Uh, but I think it would have to be a very specific type of campaign yeah. and possibly... If you are assassins, perhaps you are assassins in the employ of your kingdom. Yeah, right. Um, right. And you are taking on jobs that are given down to you by your ruler. Right. Yeah. Or you're, um, you know, a rebel faction of some sort. And, you know, you're, you're, the, you're the resistance in a sense. Right. right. And in that case, you wouldn't be an evil assassin. But, you know, but in that case, I think you could just use regular character classes anyway, because obviously... Mm-hmm most of the tropes of sort of resistance fiction, whether it's world war two or otherwise, is all sorts of people from all walks of life, you know, fighting off the powers that be. So, yeah. you know, having it, having it just be an assassin campaign doesn't quite work. Yeah. So, you know, I think that Liz, I think you're on something there. If we were, if you were going to do an assassin, you know, um, there's a lot of precedent for that in sort of like Kung Fu movie fiction of, you know, you're fighting the, you know, ninja movies, that kind of stuff like that. Yeah. There's probably a good reason why, as far as I know, the assassin class never made it into an, any of the other, core player handbooks in any future editions. It really was only in first edition, right? Or was the assassin in the second edition player's handbook? I don't remember now. It definitely wasn't in third I plus. I don't recall. I do not recall it being, but I don't think it was. I never I never play them, so I wouldn't remember. Yeah. <laughs> I mean certainly they've broken out some of the the abilities and and you know reattached them to, you know, the rogue or the thief, you know, in in later versions. Obviously in DCC, uh, DCC thieves can handle poisons. Right. And, you know, they still have the backstab ability. Sure. Um, you know, so that kind of stuff like that. But explicitly an assassin that is that's just their job is murder for hire. It's a very 
it's very limiting, I think. And again, as unless you have a, a specific frame, like I like your frame there, Liz, that, that I can't think of any, a way to make it work as part of a mixed party. Now, I know that Dungeons & Dragons is not explicitly a game that's designed just to emulate appendix and literature. Um, but one thing that I do know is that while reading these stories, it's it's fun for me to see like, oh, this is where they got that. But it's also interesting when I see ways in which D&D really doesn't emulate these kinds of fiction well. And one of those examples for me is kind of high-powered magics. Because even um, Arima, I forget her name, the female demon, or I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her name. But she, but Kothar keeps asking her to like, you know, why, why aren't you casting magics to keep yourself warm? And she's like, I'm saving my magic. And then when they get to the <laughs> town, she just kind of like puts the whole town into a trance. But that's kind of like her one trick. And one thing I've noticed is that people like Gandalf and Elric or Prospero and Face in the Frost, they're not just throwing around magic left and right. You know, they've got really powerful magics, but rarely are we seeing people cast more than maybe two or three spells in a day. Um, Where in high-powered D&D, you could be like tossing around all kinds of crazy spells constantly all day long every day, completely changing the world around you. Um, So... I don't know. I, I kind of think that for me, I'm kind of more attracted to kind of this style of magic systems than kind of more high powered D&D stuff. What do you guys think? I guess that's the difference between fiction, which has to be paced properly and the agency of in the game. Right. And, and if we want to emulate sort of world breaking magics, it, it can't happen at sort of third, fourth level. Right. Well, the nice thing about D&D is it scales well in a way that a more sort of point by system can't scale just a thought i I don't really know how to get around it yet i'd have to think about it a lot more and better people have thought about it than Mm -hmm. i have so so in general liz if you wanted to kind of play a kothar style game which system would you use to play your kothar game oh i would probably for that really gritty feel i would probably go with odnd yeah um and i would be making a world that was very low magic Mm-hmm. Uh, so swords like Kothar's would be rare and almost impossible to find. There's not, there wouldn't be a lot of magical items and it would also help to explain why people aren't slinging spells just all over the place. Yeah. Um, but as you say, I'm not sure if you would be able to do a Kothar style campaign with really high level characters because mm-hmm. once you get into the high-level magic users, you know, you're just throwing spells all over the place. Like, it's nothing. Um, a possible way around that would be to really push the uh, the, the spell component aspect mm. and make spell components so hard to find and so expensive to buy that while you might have the ability to cast a whole bunch of spells, you don't want to because you got to save your components. And it's like, I don't know <laughs> when I'm going to be able to get this powdered eye of newt again. Right. So I'm just going to hold back until I really, really need it. <laughs> yeah. I think that would be a very good approach. And in fact, I don't think Kothar is, um, again, OD&D has a pretty narrow, um, like what most characters top are around eighth, ninth level. So I, mean, I don't think Kothar is much more than like a fifth or sixth level character in, in OD and D. That's probably in, true. Yeah. You know, um, I think that I haven't really completely gotten under the hood yet with the DCC Lankmar flavor of DC, but DCC, but I think DCC Lankmar would do a pretty good job of that. I mean, it's human centric. You've got the warrior class. I mean, 
you know, Kothar is basically a warrior. And you have the spell stipulations. And so you could create spell stipulations that were specific to, you know, the Kotharian world. Um, so it's less like, you know, sort of the completely wild magic that you get in straight up DCC. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think that could work. How about you, Jeff? Oh, yeah. I'd probably just stick with OD&D for this one. I mean, it, it feels so just like I, I, I'm with Liz on this. I'd probably just go OD&D and maybe limit spellcasting for the PCs, maybe make that um, an NPC class. Or if somebody had a really, really wanted to play a wizard or magic user since it's OD&D, um, we can work it in, but we'll need to kind of discuss like what magics you have access to, et cetera. Right, right. I mean, I think the nice thing about OD&D, as you say, Liz, it's, it's kind of primal, so you can strip out a lot of stuff. I mean, again, there's people who are saying that there should only be, you know, magic users and, and warriors. Should, obviously, we talk about there's no cleric, and some people say, you know, there's no thief because it wasn't there in the, the, very, the, the, you know, the original uh, LBB, right? So, um, you know, and then you could rebuild onto that chassis of, of white box, and I think that would be, you know, not, not a bad way to go about it. And I'm I'm kind of with that school of thought too because I I think Kothar is another great example of like not only reading this do I see why we don't need the cleric class it's also kind of why we don't need the thief class because all these like warrior characters always have the same badass skills that thieves have like they can sneak and they can climb and they can right. hide and they can do all that stuff. Although to be fair, the character he's partnered up with at the very beginning of the first book is definitely a thief. I mean of this book. The, yeah, uh, I started reading it and I was thinking, oh gosh, is this going to be a ripoff of Fofford and the Grey Mouser? Oh. And it's like, it's like, well, he doesn't stick around for very long, so okay, I guess it's not. <laughs> well, <laughs> he is a thief. He just had the one D four hit yeah. dice, not the not the one D. <laughs> so, so there's something you said earlier, Liz, that got me thinking about Frostfire, his magic sword. You know, so while reading the Elric stories, I see why Elric is oftentimes hesitant to use Stormbringer because Stormbringer is like fucking evil and like eats the souls (laughs) of everything it kills. And he might end up killing his friends and family every time he uses it. I can see why he might be a little hesitant to use it. With Frostfire, the only curse is that he can't carry treasure. Yet there's a lot of times he's not using Frostfire. He's using bows or he's using his Mm -hmm. fists or he's like just kind of grabbing some improvised weapon. Do you guys have any theories as to why Kothar seems so hesitant to use Frostfire unless he really needs it? I suspect he seems to have the generic barbarian trope of mistrusting magic. I don't think Mm. he hates it, but magic, at least when it's used against him, you know, it doesn't seem to work out for him all that well, usually. And he probably is kind of like, well, I'd rather depend on myself first. And, you know, then I've got the sword as a backup if I need it. Um, On the other hand, there could be something about the sword itself that, one, makes the the person who has it want to keep it, even if they don't often use it. Mm. Because, you know, Kothar seems to be a pretty badass fighter all by himself. Does he really need Frostfire to win his battles? Right. And yet he... When he has the opportunity to, you know, get something else instead of Frostfire, it's like, no, it must be Frostfire. So like, well, I have all these other magic swords that I could give you instead. It's like, no, I want Frostfire back. Right. It's like, so it, it seems a bit odd. And maybe there's some sort of, you know, ego coercion going on by the by the sword itself that makes you want it, right, whether right. you really use it or not. <laughs> and um, another kind of interesting thing that you, you build on this, you, as you said, the swords are very rare. 
I can't remember the first book that well since it's been a while since I read it, but you never really describe any like explicitly unusual powers that Frostfire has. Yeah. It's, right? It's just a strong, it's a really good sword, but it's not like. Yeah. It's just a really good sword. Right? It's like, but maybe it's just like a plus one, maybe plus two, maybe it's a plus two sword. You know, in the grand scheme. And we don't even know why it's called Frostfire right. necessarily. Like, apparently, like, it's it's the sword that's made by the most powerful wizard on Earth right. or whoever existed. Yeah. And he's, like, turning down all of these other magic swords to keep his magic sword. But, yeah, like, all we really know is that, like, when he's in trouble and he needs to call in some backup, he calls up calls up Frostfire right. and right. pulls it out of the scabbard. Right. He was almost more excited to find the hornbow. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. He was. Like, that's a good point. <laughs> You know, it's like, ooh, it's so pretty. Right. And that actually was a good scene when he um when the when the caravan's being attacked and like you know the caravan guards are, are being undisciplined and they're firing off the arrows way too soon. And he's got the arrows that are planted in the ground waiting for them to come, you know, and he, he shoots he doesn't waste a single arrow, right? And I, I think that was a, a, a very yeah. good scene. Um you know, and I also over- really enjoyed the scenes with uh because that made me think of um the scenes with Pac Ma, yeah. the merchant he got the the horn bow from. Right. I just really enjoyed the haggling yeah. and even even when like it involved like, you know, he, when he brings his daughter back, <laughs> he like saves Pac Ma's daughter <laughs> and he's like, here, uh, what can I give for you? And he's like, I just want a fair trade for my for my ruby or for my for my jewels. And he's like, oh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go bankrupt from this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you get the impression that they're really good friends and right. uh-huh. sniping at each other like that is just a part of their friendship. And it's something they both enjoy very right. much. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like with Conan, we constantly, we're constantly being told by Robert E. Howard, how mirthful Conan is, but you don't really encounter his mirth actually in the stories. Very often you get a lot of mirth with Kothar. Right. right. Kothar is, he seems he seems like a, I'd I'd much rather have a beer with Kothar right. than with Conan. Right, right. Although I'd rather have a beer with Fafford than Kothar. Right. <laughs> Fafford seems even more right. fun. Kothar's not quite as hungry in this book, but there's a couple times too. Again, he's like, "Oh, I'm really hungry." You know, that's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That was a, that was really common in the first book. He was constantly hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. Do you guys, before we wrap this up, have any kind of last thing that you wanted to chat about? I just want to say, and this really has nothing much to do with anything, but I noticed that you can take Kothar out of any of the titles and replace his name with Harry Potter, and it works. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. That's true. Harry Potter of the Magic Sword. By the way, there's an exclamation point in that title, right? Harry Potter of the Magic Sword. (laughs) But not on the cover. Not on the cover. Not on the cover, but I mean, (laughs) Harry Potter, Barbarian Swordsman. Yeah. I think so. You're right. I think you're onto something. Harry Potter, (laughs) Harry Potter and the demon queen. Yeah. It's like like this. Wow. You could do this. (laughs) I'd read those books. (laughs) I'd like to see what Hermione would be like in that universe. I know. (laughs) Red, red Hermione. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah now i just want to go through and just like do a control f and replace kothar with harry potter and replace red lorry with hermione <laughs> and you just belong it. to me harry potter <laughs> it'll take a very different life into its own replace Aspercon with dumbledore right, right. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. That was a really great thing to end with. You're welcome. Hoy, did you have any last thing? No, I think it was a pleasure as always. I, I just, it's so fun to have different people on and their new perspectives. And that really is a, a, good, a good capper for this episode. So, 
<laughs> Absolutely. So thank you, Liz. It's been a real joy having you on. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed myself. And our next episode, episode 39, will be on Fred Saberhagen's The Broken Lands. And episode 40 will be on Lynn Carter's The Warrior of World's End. Uh, Hoy, can you let people know how they can get a hold of us? Sure. Uh, we're on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. If you want to drop us a note, we're at appendix n at gmail, appendix n book club, appendix n book club at gmail.com. <laughs> uh, if you like our uh, episodes or even if you hate our episodes, give us a rating on uh, iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. It really helps people find us. And uh, we hope to see you soon. Thanks. Yeah. And actually, I would also like to put out a plug for our MeWe page. If you're one of the people who left Google Plus and have gone to MeWe, I would recommend you join the Appendix N Book Club MeWe page. We've been having a lot of fun over there. It's been pretty active. And also one thing we've been doing is we've been having these um, these deathmatch tournaments between the Appendix N books. I was personally pretty brokenhearted when uh, the first Conan book, Conan Lancer Book 1, beat out Fritz Leiber's Swords and Deviltry, because I don't think the first Conan book is really that good. But whatever. <laughs> That's not my business. All right. <laughs> but check it out. Clearly, clearly our MeWe crowd. I don't know. We're going to have to pit, pit our MeWe crowd against our Facebook community and see what happens then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for listening and read on. See you in the stacks. The library is closed. <laughs>